Good evening. Well, we've reached the third and final cycle of debate between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. In the final cycle, their debate sort of reaches a climax. We're at a place now where the, the conversation has reached a fever pitch. This argument's going to close out tonight, but Job will go on to defend himself, and then ultimately others will speak, including Elihu and God himself. But this evening as we talk about this argument, this running argument or discussion or debate that's been going on between these men, it's important to note that while a lot of it is reiterative or even repetitive, there's so many valuable portions of Scripture that we come across. In fact, this evening... We're going to be in chapter 22, and there's one section where Eliphaz is going to encourage Job to repent, and he does it in such a beautiful and truthful way to a person who needs to repent. The error isn't in his words, it's in his application. So I want to look at that this evening as well, because assuming you were speaking to someone who truly needed to repent, it is an absolutely gorgeous portion of Scripture. Unfortunately, Job didn't need to repent. Well, fortunately, he didn't need to repent. But unfortunately for Eliphaz's words, they don't really apply. But as we get into the words this evening in chapter 22, Eliphaz is going to try to reason with Job. Job's going to defend his beliefs to Eliphaz. Bildad's going to speak briefly. And then Job's going to defend his wisdom and his understanding to Bildad. And that's the final cycle of debate. Zophar does not speak. And uh, that's probably best given the fact that everything that man has had to say so far in this book has been rather harsh and incredibly dogmatic. But with that, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. As we go through much of the scripture this evening, may we appreciate the beauty of the poetry, but may we also appreciate your truth. There's much truth here. Even those moments when the truth doesn't apply to Job, it's still truth. As it relates to us, many times when we're involved in sin or caught up in a sinful lifestyle. So, Lord, as we submit to you this evening's study, may you speak to our hearts. Show us the truth of your word and the truth of your ways that we might follow after you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read verses 1 through 3, where Eliphaz tries to reason with Job and essentially dismisses all of Job's defense and challenges as nothing more than him being proud and arrogant before God. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied in chapter 22 of the book of Job in verse 1, Can a man be of benefit to God? Can even a wise man benefit him? What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? What would he gain if your ways were blameless? I'll remind you, Job was righteous. Job's ways were blameless. The assumption is that he is lying. Then he goes on to say here, these are the reasons, Job, Eliphaz says, these are the reasons, these are the reasons he's about to cite for God's judgment against Job in verses 4 through 11. Is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your brothers for no reason. You stripped men of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry. Though you were a powerful man owning land and an honored man living on it, 
And you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. That is why snares are all around you, why sudden peril terrifies you, and why it is so dark you cannot see, and why a flood of water covers you. There are people in this world that assume to know things they shouldn't assume or presume to know. We've talked about this a lot. Don't presume to know what someone's going through. Don't presume to know what someone is feeling or thinking or experiencing. Or to try to cite their sin and call it out. It's one thing when you see someone in the very act of sin or their very own words condemn them. But so many times we judge a person's heart. We know what God says. Man looks at the outward. God looks at the inward, he said through Samuel. You need to understand that you can only see what's happening from the outside viewpoint. I think we say, don't judge a book by its cover, right? The idea is you and I need to be much more gracious and patient in dealing with people. You never know what someone is going through, how they got there, or why. You simply don't, unless God reveals it to you. And then if he does, he'll also confirm it. In this case, they were essentially grasping at straws. They couldn't live with the reality that sometimes righteous people suffer. It scared them. So they come up with a reason for why Job was suffering. And Eliphaz says it in this way in verses 4 through 11. He essentially still sees Job's suffering as the rebuke of God for his wickedness, still charging him with even specific acts of wickedness, very specific, by the way. He accuses him of extortion and usury, that is, charging exorbitant interest. By the way, they considered like 1% interest to be high. Just think about that for a minute, right? Have you ever checked your credit card statement to see what would happen if you ran a balance? I don't run a balance, but I don't want to for a good reason. I think those rates are well over 20%. Can you imagine? I mean, that's, that's pretty crazy. Well, this is what they're accusing Job of, lacking hospitality, generosity, compassion, and heart. But notice something. Eliphaz, in all of this, has not been dissuaded from believing what he believes. He still maintains his spiritual beliefs, which are, if you're suffering, it's because you've done something wrong. Then he directly accuses Job of being a wicked man. And this is in the light of the fact that we know he isn't. So imagine, verse 12, is not God in the heights of heaven and see how lofty are the highest stars? Yet you say, what does God know? Does he judge through such darkness? Thick clouds veil him so he does not see us. As he goes about in the vaulted heavens, will you keep to the old path that evil men have trod? They were carried off before their time. Their foundations washed away by a flood. They said to God, leave us alone. What can the Almighty do to us? Yet it was he who filled their houses with good things. So I stand aloft from the wicked. Excuse me. So I stand aloft from the council of the wicked. That's interesting because he's reflecting back on something Job had said and saying it sarcastically. So here's the belief that Eliphaz has. That Job should question himself rather than questioning God. He should be looking inward, not upward. And he believes that Job is responsible. He likens him to those destroyed by the flood and echoes Job's words from a prior challenge. I'll remind you then back in 21.16, that's exactly what Job said to them. He said, ah, so I stand aloof, aloof 
from the counsel of the wicked. And so Eliphaz turns his words around on him and essentially says the same thing. I stand aloof. I stand aloof from the counsel of the wicked. This argument is raging. If you don't like to be around confrontation, you can imagine that this was a challenging scene. Watching these men go back and forth as they do. Well, now he claims that the righteous find cause for rejoicing when the wicked, like Job, are judged. Think about that for a minute. He's going to suggest that if you're a righteous person, you enjoy watching someone else suffer judgment. Now, listen, first of all, we're all unrighteous before God. But if you live your life uprightly before God, and you see someone who refuses to repent, suffer the judgment of God, I understand why you would rejoice. To be honest, I probably would as well. But remember that Job is righteous. This man is basically shooting from the hip. Look at verses 19 through 20. The righteous see their ruin and rejoice. The innocent mock them, saying, Surely our foes are destroyed and fire devours their wealth. It's this idea of celebrating when the wicked finally are judged. And we understand that. We do. The truly wicked, when they're judged, we will rejoice. From heaven or earth, we will rejoice when that judgment comes. Then we go on to read in verses 19. Excuse me. Uh, 21, submit to God, and this is beautiful counsel, by the way, submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove wickedness far from your tent and assign your nuggets to the dust, your gold of Ophir to the rocks in the ravines. Then the Almighty will be your gold, the choicest silver for you. Surely then you will find delight in the Almighty and will lift up your face to God. You will pray to him and he will hear you and you will fulfill your vows. What you decide on will be done and light will shine on your ways. And when men are brought low and you say lift them up, then he will save the downcast. He will deliver even one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. And that is really beautiful language. It really is. And assuming you were receiving that counsel as a person who needed to repent, it is sensitive, beautiful, and 100% correct. Assumption being you need to repent. We know in Job's case that was not so. But this is his final plea for him to repent of his wickedness. That is Eliphaz's final plea begging him to accept the truth of his wickedness, begging him to understand that he's done wrong. Now, this is interesting because if you ever share the gospel with someone and their response is they haven't done anything wrong, they, they don't need to repent of anything. They're not a sinner. You say, I'm a sinner, but I'm not a sinner. I haven't done anything guilty before God. You sometimes get that response. Not often, but you sometimes get a person who's self-righteous who really believes they have nothing to repent of. They, they don't have anything to ask God for forgiveness for. They really don't. That's how they look at their life. That's how they look at the world. If that were the case, this language is perfect. It's spot on. So if you're ever going through a time where you know in your spirit you need to repent, but you're struggling with some type of sin, a habitual sin or an addiction, I would direct you to these words because they are powerful and they're correct in that regard. But here he's begging him to accept the truth of his wickedness. He's also promising him spiritual restoration for his repentance before God. 
And there is spiritual restoration for those who repent. He also promises him spiritual power and even influence over others if he would only just repent. God wants to do all of that in the life of a sinner. All of it. And what a beautiful promise that is. Though misguided here, it is still a beautiful truth. Well, Job defends his spiritual beliefs to Eliphaz. And in verses 1 through 7 in chapter 23, we read, Then Job replied, Even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. Would he oppose me with great power? No, he would not press charges against me. There an upright man could present his case before him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Now what does that tell us? That tells us that Job is still maintaining his integrity. They haven't convinced him that he's done anything wrong. He still believes in God's justice. He does. He longs for an audience in God's presence, and he's certain that he would be acquitted if he did stand before God. Now, that's a beautiful thing, because what it speaks to is the fact that Job really, really, truly understood that he had done nothing to deserve his circumstances. Never claimed to be perfect, never claimed to be holy in the sense that he was like God, but he's essentially saying, I've done nothing to bring this suffering into my life. And he still maintains his integrity. He does right till the end of this book. To his credit, really. One of the things we see is that he is confident in his own integrity. Now, I'll be honest with you, there are times when I am. There are times when I am. For example, if someone were to accuse me of stealing, let's say, say, well, I know you, you're stealing. Or let's say I went to the supermarket and they gave me too much change back. And someone said, well, you know, you're the kind of person that would do that. I can absolutely definitively tell you I'm not. I'm the kind of person that I will get home, count my change, realize they gave me like $2 too much, go back to the store and return it. It's happened to me at the bank. It's happened to me at stores. And I just say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I think you gave me too much money. And almost always the person says, oh, my goodness, you're a very honest person. But you know what? That just isn't my sin. Stealing is something that I don't really find palatable. It's something I detest. So therefore, it's not something that I feel comfortable being involved in. Like, for example, our, our church has a tax exemption. So when we purchase things for the church, whatever they are, we don't have to pay New Jersey sales tax. It's part of the law concerning nonprofits and specifically churches. And you file for that. You receive a form. You receive a number. And so when I go to Home Depot or Costco, we don't pay tax. But I also purchase my own things at those stores, two separate orders. Because my order, I pay tax on. Another order, the, ch- the order for the church, I don't. Same thing on Amazon. So why do I do that? Because, listen, in that regard, there are a lot of areas in my life I struggle, but this isn't one of them. I'm a person of integrity. So if someone actually accused me of doing otherwise, I would be like Job. No, 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 no. You're talking to the wrong person because I go out of my way to make sure that I can't be accused of stealing or doing something improperly. That's just how I'm built. Never had the temptation to be that kind of person to steal since I've been an adult, certainly. When you're a kid, it's a little different. You can get an extra cookie, you go for it. But as an adult, as as a reasoning young person, I just saw that as pretty disgusting. It just always bothered me a lot. Probably because when I was a little kid, about four or five years old, um, my parents didn't have a lot of money. They took me to Montclair and, and we bought a bike. And it was brand new. Like, In my house growing up, you didn't get anything brand new. I had three cousins. 
were older than me. So you didn't get clothes brand new. You didn't get nothing brand new, really. Maybe just the, the uh, what were those, Buster Brown shoes? So I got my new bike, went to sleep, woke up in the morning, and someone stole it out of my garage. And I think from that point on, like four or five years old, I have just been traumatized to that kind of thing. It really, it really devastated me as a kid, clearly, because I still remember it. And so I have this, this disgust for thievery, and that's probably where it started. Okay, so for me, that's not my problem. I have a million other problems, but it's not that one. So if someone accused me of that, I, I can tell you. I would defend my integrity because I would say, well, you're talking to the wrong guy. I'm very careful about these things. And it's funny, I get on the line of the Costco and uh, I see someone with also a tax-exempt thing. Not for churches, but sometimes they have them for businesses as well. And they're buying a mattress and they're using their tax exemption. And, and the guy goes through and the person behind the counter, I overheard them say, yeah, sure, that's for your business. See, people notice these things. You need to live in a manner that's upstanding, clearly. Job did, and he wasn't second-guessing himself in the least. So, back to where I left off. In verse 8, in chapter 23, But if I go to the east, he is not there, speaking of God. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. And when he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. That is pure. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. That's a beautiful testimony to his integrity. And what we learn here is he's frustrated that he can't find any way, any immediate way into God's presence. He's he's frustrated. He, He wants to stand before God. He doesn't dread it. He wants to. He wants to be vindicated, justified, acquitted. He's confident that God sees all things and that he will ultimately be vindicated. And he talks about being tried, coming forth as gold. Now, gold is heated in the fire. And what is left after the dross is removed is pure gold. And what he's saying is, as I go through the trial, as I, go, as I am tried, as I go through trials, all of these trials will only prove that I'm pure before God in this regard. That's essentially what he's saying. And he obeyed the word of God that had apparently been revealed even at that time. Because he says so. And one of the things that I'm struck by in verses 11 and 12, he says, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. Does that sound familiar? Rather than turning these stones to bread, what did Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Essentially, Job is saying the very same thing. Then we go on in verses 13 through 17. We read, but he stands alone, and who can oppose him, Job says of God. He does whatever he pleases. He carries out his decree against me, and many such plans he still has in store. That is why I am terrified before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my face. 
So he fears God, but he also wants to stand before God because he'll know, he knows he'll be acquitted. He knows he'll be vindicated. There's some people that will take things to court because they know, absolutely know, they haven't done anything wrong. I think of Gwyneth Paltrow. She was in the news recently, a couple weeks ago. She was being accused, I guess because she's a star and she has some money. She was accused of uh, bumping into someone uh, by this guy who was obviously trying to scam some money from her. Came up with this big story about how she crashed into him and he fell and he's had all these neurological problems ever since. The truth was that he bumped into her. And whether he was making up his symptoms or not, that, that was the truth. And she went to court really to defend her integrity. I think she countersued for a dollar or something like that, just to make the point. She wasn't looking to take anything from the man. And I, and I read the article because I was intrigued by this. And uh, when she won, which she did, she went over and put her hand on the guy that tried to scam her and says, I wish you the best. That's a person of integrity, at least in that regard. She, she was a person of integrity. And I understand that she's not going to get her lawyer fees either. And she's not going to appeal. See, sometimes it's just important on principle, on principle, to stand up for what you know is right. On principle. It may not benefit you. In fact, it may cost you something. But standing up in principle for your principles is extremely important. So as we've talked about this and we've gone through verse 17, remember that Job is confident in God's sovereignty. He doesn't doubt that God is in control. Even though he doesn't understand, he knows God is in control. I mean, he's already submitted to God's authority, and he maintains his reverence for God, even in his complaining. He's saying, I still fear God. You're saying I don't fear God. His detractors were saying, well, you know, you you boldly proclaim these things, and you don't reverence God. You don't fear God. He did fear God. He's terrified of him to be in his presence. But he also knows he's right. (laughs) He knows he hasn't done anything wrong. Now, they were suggesting that he should be judged for abusing or oppressing the poor. So what Job does now is he talks about the fact that he would welcome God's justice in defense of the poor. He doesn't fear God's justice against those that would abuse the poor. In fact, he welcomes it because he knows he hasn't abused anyone. Look at verses 1 through 12 in chapter 24. Why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know him look in vain for such days? Men move boundary stones. That's like if your neighbor builds a fence on your property and takes a few feet of your property. That's moving a boundary stone, right? That's the idea. Stealing, again, stealing property, really. They pasture flocks they have stolen. They drive away the orphan's donkey. They take the widow's ox in a pledge. That is, they, they... loan money, and then when she can't pay it, they take the ox as collateral. They thrust the needy from the path and force all the poor of the land into hiding like wild donkeys in the desert. The poor go about their labor of foraging food. The wasteland provides food for their children. They gather fodder in the fields and glean the vineyards of the wicked. Lacking clothes, they spend the night naked, and they have nothing to cover themselves in the cold. They are drenched by mountain rains and hug the rocks for lack of shelter. The fatherless child is snatched from the breast, and the infant of the poor is seized for a debt that is taken into service. Lacking clothes, they go about naked. They carry the sheaves, but still go hungry. That is, they gather the food, but they can't eat it. They crush olives among the terraces. They tread the wine presses, yet they suffer thirst. The groans of the dying rise from the city, and the souls of the wounded cry out for help, but God charges no one with wrongdoing. Now, he's not complaining about God, he's complaining to God. He's complaining about injustice to God. You ever done that? I do it all the time. 
you're not questioning God's justice. He, he believes that God is a just God. He just would like to see that justice meted out on those that do abuse the poor. And so essentially, through verse 12, he's frustrated that he doesn't have immediate access to God. And he cites the many injustices that others, not himself, but others, have inflicted against the poor. He sees these things, the things they're accusing him of. He sees that they're done. And he describes the miserable plight of the poor that, like him, long for God's judgment. That description of how the poor suffer should stir your heart. There are many people in this world that have such problems, have so little I have to be honest, I've been around this country a little bit. Not every state, but many states. That's at least twice we went to West Virginia. There there are poor people in our country. But very few of the poor people come close to the poor people in Central America that I saw. My first trip to El Salvador just devastated me. I was, like, traumatized by what I saw. Going from house to house and seeing how people lived in shacks, dirt floors, no running water, nothing. I mean, nothing. Perhaps one of the most impactful moments was when we were going from shack to shack. I was going to say door to door, but really shack to shack. Delivering food and praying with people. I remember that there was one house where the woman invited us in. Young girl. I mean, she couldn't have been 18. And she invited us in, and, you know, you walk in. You, you ever been in a, a shack with a dirt floor? It isn't like it's flat, okay? It's like there's divots and potholes and everything else. So you walk in, and she said, oh, would you pray for my baby? The baby was just born a couple days ago. And in this shack, laying on a mattress on the dirt, you know, we prayed for her and the baby. That, that really left the mark. I remember coming back from that, and I told Michelle, you know, I... I, I just, I'm, I'm all messed up. You know, I just really messed with my head to see people that poor. It took me a while to even be able to think about it or function. Since then, I'd been back like 15 or 16 times. And I'm not jaded to it, but having seen it and digested it and realized what it is, I'm able to deal with it better. But initially, it like wiped me out, right? So we come back and we go to Jose Tejas, which is a little restaurant over on 46. And it was a family sitting down and they uh, had just eaten all this food and they left so much on the table before they took the check. There was another whole meal on the table that they left. And I got to tell you, that's one thing that kind of, I got to really make sure that I behave myself. If I'm around somebody or if I'm out to lunch or breakfast or dinner with someone and they don't take their food, it's very hard for me not to very nicely, hopefully, say, you know, why don't you take it home? Like, even if they throw it out at home, I don't want to see it left on the table Not after I've seen people really that needy. So the plight of the poor should stir you. It should. And you should cry out for God's judgment. You you should look for God's justice. You, You should want that. Job did, even though they were making false accusations against him. He would welcome God's justice against the wicked that oppressed the poor. Look what it says in verses 13 through 17 of chapter, where are we? Chapter 24, right? There are those who rebel against the light. Those who do not know its paths, or excuse me, do not know its ways or stay in its paths. When daylight is gone, the murderer rises up and kills the poor and the needy. In the night, he steals forth like a thief. The eye of the adulterer watches for dusk. He thinks no one, no eye will see me. And he keeps his face concealed. In the dark, men break into houses, but the day, by day, they shut themselves in. 
They want nothing to do with the light, for all of them, deep darkness is their mourning. They make friends with the terrors of darkness. And isn't it interesting that people who commit crimes almost always commit them at night? And that's essentially what Job is saying (laughs) thousands thousands of years earlier. He's, He's making the observation. And it's true. Oftentimes I'll hear of someone that was on their way home from, a, I assume, a bar or a restaurant at 1 o'clock in the morning, and nothing good happens on the street at 1 o'clock in the morning. Have you noticed that? I mean, there was that tech exec who was killed in San Francisco, I believe. And uh, they're just re- finding out now that apparently he was out having a good time, and I guess about 1 or 2 in the morning, he was killed. He was stabbed and killed. There's no good reason to be out on the street at that time, right? But at that time, that's when these crimes are usually committed. Why is that? Well, Job postulates, he, he thinks it through, he's like, they hate the light. They want to be in darkness. They don't want anybody to see them. I mean, they could just as well commit crimes in broad daylight, and many people do. But there's something about the darkness that brings out the murderer, the adulterer, all, all those that he mentions here. And I think it's just very interesting that he, that he poetically describes what we know to be true. But he's certainly welcoming God's justice against these wicked people. He's also confident in God's impending judgment against the wicked. He knows it will come eventually. And so he says in verse 18, describing these wicked people, yet they are foam on the surface of the water. Their portion of the land is cursed so that no one goes to the vineyards. As heat and drought snatch away the melted snow, so the grave snatches away those who have sinned. The womb forgets them. The worm feasts on them. Evil men are no longer remembered but are broken like a tree. They prey on the barren and the childless woman, and the two the widows show no kindness, but God drags away the mighty by his power. Though they become established, they have no assurance of life. He may let them rest in a feeling of security, but his eyes are on their ways. And for a little while they are exalted, and then they are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all the others. They are cut off like heads of grain. Poetic way of saying they're going to get it. It's going to happen. Listen, I'm waiting. I still firmly believe in our system of government, even though it's extremely corrupt, because the people involved in our government are corrupt. But I still believe, at least there's a good chance, hopefully, that some of the people who are corrupt in government will be brought to justice. I, I, I still pray and hope that that will happen. But even if they're not, God's justice will inevitably come upon them. And that's the justice I truly have hope in, God's justice. And I think we need to remember that God sees all of these things. So he's confident in God's justice and his judgment. And he challenges his detractors now to prove him wrong in his spiritual beliefs. When he says in verse 25, If this is not so, who can prove me false and reduce my words to nothing? And then Bildad has his say. We read in verse... 25, uh, chapter 25, verse 1, we'll read the uh, whole section, whole verse, uh, excuse me, whole, all the verses in this chapter. It's only uh, six. Then build out the shoe, I replied, dominion and all belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. Can his forces be numbered? Upon whom does his light not rise? How then can a man be righteous before God? How can one born of woman be pure? If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is but a maggot, 
a son of man who is only a worm. Now remember, Bildad is the philosopher, right? So he's concluded that man is wicked, and man is wicked. And therefore, how can he have the right to proclaim any complaint before God? He has philosophized, he has thought his way through this and come to the conclusion that all men are wicked. And all men are sinful, but not all men are wicked. Men and women in this world divide into two categories. Righteous sinners, that is, righteous in Christ, but they've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and wicked sinners. But you can be righteous as a sinner, that is, imperfect, impure before God, and you can also be wicked. It it depends on the state of your heart and your relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think that that's something that seems to be lost on Bildad in terms of the truth as Job sees it and has experienced it. He dismisses Job's challenges as weak and ignorant before God. And he challenges Job's confidence in God's justice and his own integrity. He doesn't, he doesn't buy it. And so Bildad only has a little to say. Eliphaz was kind of brief. Bildad just had a little bit to say, and Zophar doesn't say anything. What does that tell you about the argument, the debate? In my estimation, it seems that Job has effectively shut them up. Because after this, they have nothing more to say. Well, then we continue in what will be the last chapter this evening that we'll read. A lot of reading tonight. In verses 1 through 4, here Job defends his wisdom and his understanding to this individual named Bildad. you got to love his sarcasm. I happen to be a lover of sarcasm. I use it quite a bit. I consider it my third language, maybe my first. I think that sarcasm has its place. It's certainly in the Bible. It makes its point. And sometimes it doesn't come out in the text, but you can't miss it here. Look at verses 1 through 4 in chapter 26. Then Job replied, How you have helped the powerless! How you have saved the arm that is feeble! What advice you have offered to one without wisdom! And what great insight you have displayed! Who has helped you utter these words and whose spirit spoke spoke from your mouth? You can see that sarcasm, right? It's clear. It's obvious. Now, one of the things that we do understand, it's true. A man cannot be righteous before God apart from the man, the God, man, Jesus Christ. That is true. That is true. No one is suggesting otherwise. However, you can be a person of integrity and be upright before God despite your sinful state. These men had no understanding and no wisdom of God or his ways. Not really. And we'll see that that bears out toward the end of the book. But remember that Jesus is the only one born of women that is pure before God. Job is never, ever suggesting that he is perfect or pure, just that he has integrity. And then he begins to really become quite philosophical, and he ponders the earth's deepest mysteries in an attempt to silence his detractors. He begins to think of the many things that no one could possibly understand. Even today, with science, we don't completely understand some of the things he's going to mention. Like, for example, weather patterns. Uh, I don't know about you, but I check the weather every day. I don't look at it, say, oh, in a week it's going to be nice, and then just pretend that it wouldn't have changed. We do our best to try to understand these things, and sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we get it wrong. But let's be honest, we don't really understand a lot. 
about God and his ways in the natural world. We just don't. And here's what he has to say. And let's look at verses 5 through 14 in chapter 26. The dead are in deep anguish, those beneath the waters and all that live in them. Death is naked before God. Destruction lies uncovered. He spreads out the northern skies over empty space, and he suspends the earth over nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight. He covers the face of the full moon, spreading his clouds over it, and he marks out the horizon on the face of the waters for a boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of the heavens uh, quake, aghast at his rebuke, and by his power he churned up the sea. By his wisdom he cut Rahab to pieces. By his breath the skies became fair, and his hand pierced the gliding serpent. And these are but the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? It really is beautiful. In any language, I imagine it's probably the best in Hebrew, but it's very, very beautiful in English as well. Because the poetry is not a rhyming poetry. It's more about a reiteration of thought. It's called parallelism. It's the idea that you say something and then you say it again. You expound upon it. You say it as many ways as you can so that ultimately you really make your point. But you do it in a poetic way. Here's what Job is suggesting. That God's understanding dramatically exceeds man's understanding. He does say that in a poetic way. Isaiah was a little bit more straightforward. My ways are above your ways. My thoughts above your thoughts. But in verses 5 and 6, he talks about death in the underworld. Does anyone understand that? Job doesn't suggest he does. He suggests that we don't understand. What is death? What is the underworld? We see what the scriptures say about it, but no one truly understands it. Gravity talks about the earth being sort of suspended. Anyone, can anyone explain gravity? Do you know that the most brilliant minds in the world really don't understand gravity? Uh, they can sort of explain how it works a little. They don't really understand why it works. The theory of relativity tried to explain how it's related to other forces, but at the end of the day, I don't think anyone really understands how it works, yet we know it exists. How about the atmosphere and the weather? And, and by the way, it shows that Job and his friends had a significantly advanced understanding of the environment in which they lived. These weren't guys that you know, lived in a cave and did cave paintings. These were very intelligent men. I would suggest that from the creation in the garden, mankind has lost a great deal of his intelligence, not necessarily gained it. And if you think otherwise, look at the world we live in. How about earthquakes are mentioned here? Hurricanes, whirlpools and tornadoes, all of these weather phenomena that scientists study today but no one really understands. He mentions Rahab again. It means proud. It can refer to a nation like Egypt being proud. It can refer to a person. But it also refers to an enormous sea creature. And we've talked a little bit about this going back into chapter 3 when he spoke of Leviathan. Now, Leviathan was some type of sea creature. We've talked about it before. And uh, whatever he's referring to, whether mythological or actually in existence at that time, the creatures of the sea are impressive even today. Let's just talk about 
I don't know, humpback whales or blue whales. I mean, if you're talking about that, I don't think that's what Leviathan is, but if you were just to speak of those things, they're enormous creatures. I, I remember when I was a little kid, my Nana took me to the Museum of Natural History. It seemed like you, she, she always took one of us. Like, like, she took me, and I know later on I think she took my brother, my, my, my brothers, but separately. She, it was just one of us when we went. And I remember going, I was the oldest, so I went first. And we came into that big room with the blue whale hanging from the ceiling. And when you're that small and you see something that large, you feel, like, intimidated, I was freaked out. I don't know about you, but, like, when I see something that big, especially as a kid, I was, like, terrified. Not, not because of what it was, but it's immense size. It terrified me as a kid. You know, I remember going back there as an adult. We, we took uh, Michelle's little cousins, and, and I remember feeling, wow, I'm not afraid, you know. But when I was a kid, I was terrified of that. Like, left a scar. This is my therapy session tonight, by the way. So when, when, when I think about large animals, and especially sea creatures, you understand why it would be linked to proud, why it would be linked to things that are larger than life, obviously. But Rahab is mentioned poetically, but it's also possibly referring to a creature that lived in the water at that time that maybe is not in existence today. Many animals have gone extinct even over the last few years especially over the last couple thousand years, you know. So that's, that's, that's possible, but it's mentioned there. That's what we're referring to there when we talk about he cut Rahab to pieces. Now, Rahab lives in the sea. So if there was a whirlpool or a tornado, the idea is that he's greater than even the greatest sea creature. And by his breath, the skies become, became fair, and his hand pierced the gliding serpent, referring to Leviathan. Leviathan is referred to as a serpent. You know those pictures you see of sea monsters? You know, those, those sort of snakes? Uh, that may have some basis and some truth. We don't know. Dragons, Leviathan, these things seem to have existed in ancient times and don't exist anymore. But I'll say no more about that. All that kind of points us in the direction of the fact that man's understanding of God is severely limited. That's the point of Job's defense. We don't know why God does what he does. And in that, I think Job came to the right conclusion. He doesn't know. He literally has no clue as to why he's suffering. Anthony and I were talking about it. He he said it was like a spoiler alert that I keep saying that when we get to the end of the book, we're not given an answer as to why God did this. But that's the spoiler. Not only is Job right, that we don't understand why he does what he does, he doesn't owe us an explanation. And he doesn't ever give one to Job. What's the point? God is God, and you're not. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you. We learned so much in this study about your matchless ways, your ways which are beyond understanding, thoughts higher than our own, And it causes us to understand this much. We have to put our faith in you and trust in you, though we can never possibly explain you or understand you. And that was the real error of Job's three friends. That they approached this entire situation believing that they could sort of spiritually or philosophically or dogmatically explain who you are and why you do what you do. May we never fall into that trap. May we always recognize by faith that we trust you and worship you 
and especially when we can't explain what you're doing or why. Help us, Lord, to trust in you in this week and going forward in our lives, that we would cling to you ever closer when things don't make sense, that we would glorify you in our lives even when these things happen around us and we can't understand them. Help us, Lord. Give us your understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.